welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast where we dig into the paranormal and try to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. I'm Chad. And I'm Eli. And this week, we're going to do some more strange disappearances. Uh, I think the stories we have, everybody's probably heard of them. We're just going to kind of cover them a little bit and talk about them. So, Dave, why don't you start us off with the infamous D.B. Cooper. Cooper. On November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, a man approximately 40 years old, wearing a dark-colored suit, pressed white shirt with a clip-on skinny tie, a mother-of-pearl tie pin, and a trench coat, approached the counter at PDX Airport in Portland. He was carrying a briefcase, had olive skin and wavy black hair. He was somewhere between 5 foot 10 to 6 feet tall and approximately 180 pounds. He asked the lady behind the counter of Northwest Oriental Airlines if flight 305 to Seattle was on a Boeing 727-100. She told him it was. Even if she thought the question was odd or suspicious, there was no way she could or would publicly question a potential customer in 1971. He bought a one-way ticket for $20 cash. Identification was not required to purchase a ticket, but he wrote the name Dan Cooper in block letters on the form. This is also a good time to point out that not only was an ID not required to purchase a ticket, but there were no metal detectors and luggage was not required to be opened and checked. They could even keep their shoes on. Lucky bastards. (laughs) (laughs) Dan Cooper boarded the plane along with two pilots, one engineer, three flight attendants, and 36 passengers. He ordered a bourbon and soda, lit up a Rally brand cigarette, and smoked it with his left hand. He then handed a note to the flight attendant Florence Schaffner shortly after takeoff. She thought it was the usual phone number or scrawled cat calls she would receive constantly from businessmen. So she dropped it into her apron without a second thought. Dan Cooper then said, Miss, you'll want to read that. I have a bomb. The note said to her recollection, because he took it back from her later, quote, I have a bomb in my briefcase. I will use it if necessary. It was all written in capital letters. He requested her to sit next to him. Cooper showed the bomb to Schaffner upon request. She later described it as eight red cylinders, four on top of four, a cylindrical battery with wires coated in red insulation connecting it all together. You bite at acne? (laughs) (laughs) What'd you say? So did he bite at acne? He borrowed it from Wiley Coyote. Cooper communicated with the pilots through the phones on the planes or by sending flight attendants up to the cockpit throughout the entire encounter. In other words, the two pilots and the engineer never saw him. He demanded $200,000 in negotiable U.S. currency, two sets of parachutes, and a fuel truck waiting in Seattle in return for the 36 passengers. So $200,000 would be $1.25 million dollars in 2019 money. Now, way back then, when people took hostages and made demands, 
they pretty much just got whatever they wanted. This was also nowhere near the first plane hijacking, but it was the first in the U.S. where money was demanded. Between 1968 and 1972, there were approximately 130 plane hijackings in the United States alone. The majority of them were people who wanted to be flown to Cuba. The FBI, who was still under J. Edgar Hoover at the time, tried to place air marshals on flights in 1970 and 71, but they lacked manpower to cover every flight, or even one out of a hundred flights. They did, however, think about building an airport in Florida that was a replica of the airport in Havana, where they could fly hijackers to and then arrest them after they left the plane. Cooper was different than other hijackers. He was calm, polite, and for the most part, non-argumentative. He was Canadian. <laughs> sorry, I got, sorry. A I got a bomb. I got a bomb. Sorry, uh, can I can I get two hundred thousand dollars cash? Uh, oh, sorry about that. The only threat he made was on the note, which just said he would use the bomb if necessary. When Schaefer returned from the cockpit, Cooper was wearing large sunglasses. They won't recognize me now. <laughs> so the pilots of the seven twenty seven contacted the authorities, and the FBI was contacted. They began to search for $200,000 and four parachutes. The pilots notified the passengers that they were having technical difficulties and needed to stay in the air before landing at Seattle, instead of saying the plane had been hijacked. They then proceeded to circle the airport for the next two hours. So, wait, wait, wait. So, you're on an airplane, and the pilot says, we're having technical difficulties, but then you continue to fly in the air for another two hours. I'd be freaking the fuck out by like 15 minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah because the, the flight was only supposed to take 30 minutes during this time flight attendant tina mucklow was sitting next to cooper they were making small talk mostly he asked her where she was from and she said minnesota he remarked that he recognized tacoma airport from the air and that mccord air force base was only a 20 minute drive from there he also ordered more bourbon and soda and even paid for his drinks. When he told Mucklow to keep the change as a tip, she informed him she could not accept gratuity. The attendant asked him at one point if he had a grudge against the airline, to which he responded, No, I just have a grudge. We'll get back to hanging with Mr. Cooper in a few minutes. That was a great TV show. On the ground, the authorities were trying to divert other aircraft from the area, find the money, the parachutes, and to coordinate fighter jets, police snipers, and other resources. There just so happened to be a bank that had $200,000 in non-sequential $20 bills, which had its serial numbers cataloged in order and already on microfilm. Most banks used to keep a quote-unquote robbery bag like this, because bank robberies were also very common in the 60s and 70s. The bills were rubber banded together instead of being bound. They were also stacked in different amounts. This was done to make it look as though the teller went to the vault and threw non-sequential stacks of rubber banded cash together quickly at that moment. The more difficult task was finding the parachutes. Because Cooper, speci because Cooper specified civilian parachutes with manual ripcords 
and not military chutes which automatically open by measuring barometric pressure. They eventually located two main back parachutes and two reserve front parachutes from a flight school. More specifically, one was a military parachute with a manual ripcord that could not be steered and a military backup parachute. A sport main parachute that had a manual ripcord and could be steered and a sport backup chute. The FBI didn't tamper with the parachutes because they were unsure if he was going to make one of the crew parachute out with him. One of the reserve chutes was in fact a training chute, which means that the main parachute was sewn shut, and the ripcord was unoperational. This, oddly, was the one Cooper used, despite the fact it had a giant red X across it. He also chose the military main parachute that could not be steered. In other words, the worser of the two main parachutes. He is Wiley Coyote. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of that scene in Robert Rod, <laughs> Roger Rabbit when he's falling yeah. out of the building. He's like, you have a spare? <laughs> and he pulls the like ripcord out of the tire in there. <laughs> <laughs> so when the fillet, when the plane finally landed at 5.39 p.m. All the window shutters were closed at Cooper's request, which was smart because there were snipers set up all around. He had the pilot taxi out to a far part of the runway that was well lit because by then it was nighttime. The flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, dropped the aft staircase, a feature only found on the Boeing 727-100. She grabbed the bank bag and the four shoots from Al Lee, Northwest Orient Seattle's operational manager, who approached the plane in his civilian clothes rather than his uniform. The passengers were released, as well as Schaffner, the flight attendant, and Alice Hancock, the senior flight attendant. Tina Mucklow, the flight attendant, could have walked right off of the aft staircase, and the pilot, co-pilot, and engineer could have dropped the rope ladder and fled. But none of them did. A fuel truck was brought over to refill the plane, and another was brought over when the first one experienced a vapor lock failure. And finally, a third was brought over when the second one ran out. Cooper talked with the cockpit during refueling via the phone. He said he wanted to go to Mexico City. They informed him... They could only make it to Reno on the fuel they had, but they could land and refill there. He agreed and then made very specific requests. First, the plane was not to fly over 10,000 feet. It was not to exceed 115 miles per hour. The wing flaps also needed to be lowered to 15 degrees. Now I want to point out, that 115 miles per hour is the minimum speed this model of aircraft could go without stalling out. This was also the only aircraft of the time which wing flaps could be set at 15 degrees. His other requests were that the aft staircase remain down, the cabin remain unpressurized, and the landing gear remain down. The engineer said that leaving the staircase down would be unsafe as it would throw sparks on takeoff. Cooper disagreed, but then said he would just have them open it from the cockpit. 
They informed Cooper it could only be lowered manually. Cooper denied a request from an FAA official to a face-to-face meeting aboard the aircraft. Cooper and the crew reached their compromise, and the plane took off heading towards Reno at 7.40 p.m. So, uh, two hours from when they landed. Two F-106 fighter jets were activated, but they were flying too fast to maintain good sight of the Boeing 727. One was above and one was below, pretty much flying in figure eights. Uh, Lockheed 1033s were diverted from an unrelated National Guard air mission, but it never got sight of the Boeing 727 before it had to land due to lack of fuel. Helicopters were also dispatched, but proved too slow to keep up with the 727. In the air, Cooper opened one backpack reserve parachute, which was the military one, and cut two lines from the canopy, probably to use for securing the bank bag to himself. The flight attendant, uh, Mucklow, didn't help Dan Cooper open the aft staircase as he was preparing the chutes in the bank bag. She recounted he wanted her to open it, but she refused, afraid that she would be sucked out of the plane. Instead of forcing her, or even arguing with her, he just said, never mind, I'll take care of it. Then told her to go to the cockpit and close the first class curtain on her way, and that no one was to leave the cockpit. The last thing she saw was him tying something around his waist. Now this could have been the bank bag, or possibly he did this so his trench coat wouldn't be flapping around on the jump. Or both. At 8 o'clock, the light on the instrument panel signifying the staircase was open came on. The pilot came over the intercom and asked Cooper if he was okay. He said yes over the phone. Then they asked if he needed help, to which he responded, no, stay in the cockpit. The, the crew soon noticed a subjective change of air pressure, indicating that the aft door was open. At 8.13, about a half hour after takeoff, 25 miles north of Portland over the Cascade Mountains, the pilots felt the tail end of the craft make a sudden upward movement. They assumed he had jumped out, but the captain said they would remain in the cockpit until they landed in Reno as they were instructed. At 10.15 p.m., when the plane landed, the aft staircase was still down. The FBI swarmed the aircraft to ensure Cooper had left it and to collect evidence. There was a flub-up with the press and the authorities shortly after they started narrowing suspects. A reporter heard a cop discussing D.B. Cooper, who happened to be the very first suspect, that was cleared of being hijacker Dan Cooper. Then, wanting to be the first to report, he relayed back to his office the hijacker used the Elias D.B. Cooper, and other media sources continued that echo chamber until it became the collective memory. Interesting. I've always known it as D.B. Cooper. I've never, ever known it as anything else. Well, the FBI, they use this as a common law enforcement tactic to be able to rule out false confessions or bad leads. They didn't release the actual Elias of Dan Cooper until many years later. A month after the hijacking, the FBI released the list of the ransom money serial numbers to financial institutions, racetracks, casinos, and other businesses that routinely conducted significant 
cash transactions. In early 1972, the serial numbers were released to the general public. In February 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram, while vacationing with his family on the Columbia River, uncovered three packets of the ransom cash as he raked the sandy riverbank to build a campfire. The bills were disintegrating, but still bundled in rubber bands. The FBI confirmed that the money was a portion of the ransom, more specifically two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper. Because if you remember, the cash was non-sequential, but the order was cataloged and microfilmed. None of the 9,710 remaining bills have ever turned up anywhere else. The area that Cooper was thought to have landed in was combed thoroughly after the spring thaw, many months after the hijacking. The FBI even got the CIA to perform reconnaissance with their SR-71 Blackbird, the classified at the time spy plane that was used specifically in identifying, analyzing, and photographing ground targets. The FBI has also revealed that Dan Cooper left behind eight Rally brand cigarette butts, 66 partial fingerprints, who, have real, who realistically could have been from anyone. Uh, they could not determine which glass or glasses he used. They found a clip-on tie, and later they obtained three partial DNA profiles sometime from it in 2001. They also found traces of metal on the tie, including aluminum and bismuth. There were also rare earth minerals such as cerium and strontium sulfide. One of the applications for such rare elements in the 70s was Boeing's supersonic transport development projects, suggesting Cooper might have been a Boeing employee. A clip-on tie would be recommended for safety around machinery, fans, and engines. On the tie was a mother-of-pearl tie clip attached in a way that suggested Cooper may have been left-handed. The partial DNA profiles might very well not be from the hijacker at all. The tie itself could also even be something a passenger left behind. The FBI closed the unsolved case on July 8, 2016. <clears throat> Over the years, upwards of a thousand people have been accused or suspected of being Dan Cooper. I didn't dig into many of them. There are also many theories, including conspiracy theories from over the years. There is a D.B. Cooper podcast called The Cooper Vortex, hosted by Darren Schaefer and Russell Colbert. They present a different theory or suspect every episode and weigh it against the facts with their guests. One of my favorite theories is that Cooper went on to start the popular website IMDB. Ha 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 ha. I'm just shaking my head. Just shaking my head. Yeah, the snort out of Dave. He's, he, he likes his own jokes. <laughs> Come on, that's a good joke. <laughs> so after D.B. Cooper's hijacking, there were as many as 15 copycat hijackers in the following year of 1972. 
Most of them use handguns, shotguns, or submachine guns in lieu of a bomb. Damn it. <laughs> Assault rifles. Two of them stole upwards of $500,000, survived the skydive, but were caught shortly after. Dan Cooper's hijacking remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in the United States. These hijackings caused new regulations which saw the incorporation of metal detectors in airports and the mandatory checking of luggage, (coughs) as well as the companies having the right to search airline passengers' bodies, all of which were considered unconstitutional according to the Fourth Amendment prior to this. Federal courts did rule over the multiple lawsuits of these amendment violations that it is acceptable when searches are applied universally and only when limited to the search of weapons or explosives. In 1973, there were only two hijackings in the United States, both committed by psychiatric patients. One of them intended to crash the airliner into the White House to kill President Nixon. The last Cooper copycat hijacker was Glenn K. Tripp. He seized Northwest Flight 608 at Seattle-Tacoma Airport on July 11, 1980. He demanded $600,000, two parachutes, and for his boss to be assassinated. (laughs) Fuck this job! (laughs) A flight attendant drugged Trip with Valium inside of an alcoholic beverage. After a 10-hour standoff, Trip reduced his demands to three cheeseburgers and a head start on getting away. (laughs) <laughs> he was quickly apprehended He's the cheeseburger The cheeseburglar Cheese, Yeah, cheeseburglar <laughs> But not a scrap of his parachute was ever found None of the other ransom money was ever found So I feel like with his knowledge of the aircraft He had to have been military like, And also the capital handwriting Yeah Is a yeah. military thing so I feel like he's either past military and works for, like did work for Boeing or worked for the military dealing with the Boeing 747. Yeah. To know all that information. Now they did yeah. use a, a model of the 727 in Vietnam for a time. As you're reading that, I kind of came up with my own theory. I'm pulling a Chad. Yeah. He was part of the crew. He worked with the crew. Whether he was actually, whether there was actually a Dan Cooper or not, I think. Okay, because first of all, there's no recording of any of this stuff Mm-mm. because it was the time period. Um, so there weren't voice recorders, all that stuff. No. Either he got off the plane with the other passengers, hence why the tie was left, and things he changed his appearance somehow and got off with the passengers, and the crew was involved in this, and or he was one of the crew members. So I could see either, it being an either, inside job where either the was, stewardess yeah. or like the captain or co-pilot, or they were all involved somehow, and there is no actual... D.B. Cooper or Dan Cooper 
Yeah. Like it's I, I believe that an alias yeah, type alias, situation. Yeah. So DB Cooper was an inside job. Yeah. And okay, they threw a couple of bucks out the plane to make it so if they found it, yeah. they're like, Okay, he landed in this area. Parachutes they probably threw out later on. Yeah. You know? And what puzzles me most is if a rubber band is out in the sun for like a day, it's brittle and it falls apart. Yeah. And after nine years, the rubber well, band. But it, it went out in the snow, so it stayed. It probably fell into a pile of snow, was covered up by trees and foliage and all that stuff. Well, if it was also on the riverbank, yeah. it's possible it landed in the water and, and then got covered up in sand. And as the water receded, that's when the kid was in the yeah. summer and yeah. spring. Then he started playing with the sand to make a campfire and found it. Yeah. yeah I, I don't that. think that there was a Dan Cooper. I think it was a just a alias type name that they used. Well, I mean who the, in their I mean I shouldn't say that that way because people are stupid. But normally, who in their right mind who knew they were going to hijack a plane would write down their real name. Yeah. So well, that right there tells me it's an alias. Everything just sounds it sounds so Looney Tune character wise. Like I like I was saying with the bomb and then it just so happened that the parachute he used was the bad parachute. You know, it's like no, the people that came up with this plan had watched Looney Tunes and they just played out a <laughs> Looney Tunes act and you know, I mean you do make good points. I mean, his the character himself like completely contradicts itself. It, Several times. Yeah. You know. For as knowledgeable as he was about the aircraft and the everything else, for him to make some of the decisions he made and things like that. and For him to know that it could be set at, that is the only plane that could be set at 15 degrees and then all that yeah, stuff. But then miles per hour. And but then not know that you had to lower the staircase manually. Yeah. So wasn't there also a, an occasion of someone flying, finding currency from... The DV Cooper situation in in circulation. No. Okay. No. So that was just a rumor then. Um, there was a group of guys that made some counterfeit money and sold it to Newsweek for like thirty grand. Um, and another and another cool story is the kid that found it. The FBI let him keep a few bills as a souvenir, and he wound up selling them on eBay to like a true crime uh, aficionado. I don't know yeah. what they're called, but. For like thirty seven thousand dollars or something. Wow. Damn. Why <laughs> yeah. didn't I find that shit? I know, right? No, I think that I think that the pilots and the stewardess were all involved in it. That's one of the reasons why they didn't leave the plane. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talked about how easily it would have been. And never did, yeah. 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 They have all the knowledge about the plane. And yeah, I think they were involved in it. And I think that there was not an actual person that hijacked the plane. I think it was just all a story that the three of them made up in order, um, four of them made up in order to make this happen. One thing that the, the FBI has pointed out that most people didn't know you could even open the staircase in flight. But that's because nobody had ever tried it. Because if you tried it and the cabin was pressurized, it, it, it would have been a, a yeah. really big catastrophe. Uh, but 
I say, that's what makes me think it had a bit inside job or someone yeah. who or, worked on the planes and knew the ins and yeah. outs or of what it could maybe do. an engineer of the plane or something like that. But yeah. So maybe, I mean, with, with that tie pointing to those rare elemental yeah. uh, metals and stuff, that's say, a plausible thing. It could easily have been an engineer who helped design the planes and build them and then was friends with the pilot or the stewardess and came up with mm-hmm. this plan to get rich and... But then what did they do with the money? They went to Mexico City and they exchanged it out and... Now they're li- living La Vida Loca. <laughs> living La Vida Loca. <laughs> well, it also depends on when the money was put on the plane. If it was, put on before, it was put on before he let the people off the plane. Who's to say, some you know, the stewardess and say there was someone who, a pa- patient who put the name... Passenger? Dan Cooper, passenger, <laughs> yeah. who put in the name Dan Cooper and was part of it, you know, the, the engineer who designed the plane. When they brought the money in, they snuck it into his suitcase. Well, I, I don't mean the physical. I mean, how come it's never been found in circulation? So, yeah, they could have just gone. Mm-hmm. Gone to another country, exchanged yeah. the currency out. And I guess Panama was accepting U.S. currency yeah. at the time. Well, I mean, you go and exchange your currency. But you think and that it would get put into circulation at that point, but I don't know. Does when they exchange the currency, does it come back to the Federal Reserve or does it get panted back out as other currency to people who are exchanging back out? I don't or know, but at every financial institution they log in what what serial like, numbers yeah. comes in and what serial numbers go out. Unless you're going into like a like Panama or you go yeah. even smaller and you go into like a really small country. That they're going to accept your U.S. money. I, w- I wonder if it could have wound up like with the cartel. Yeah. Because that, that was a time when cocaine smuggling was uh, just getting started. Yeah. Also the theory that it had to have been... Eli's opened his mouth like five uh, times. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Does anybody... Did anybody research... Or not research, but like as far as the FBI goes... Say anything about the stewardess and or the pilots staying there after the event. Meaning, like, did they just go through this traumatic experience and then dip out? Because, um, like, if I was in that situation and I stole a bunch of money and I was in on the heist, I would do whatever the fuck it took me to do to get the hell out of the U.S. Here. Yeah. The only one I really know anything about is Tina Mucklow. And yeah. she had a hard time coping with it. And she became a nun afterwards. She, Perfect That's cover where up. the money went. It went, went to, to the, the church. church. Our Father who art... In, I don't know. It's the Vatican, and it helped pay for molestations for little boys. Something also... like I don't know. When you start going over this, what kept jumping in my head was like Boeing testing what their plane could do. Like... Kind of like how you have like the internet security programs who were like, "Hey, I'll give someone this much money if you can hack into my system." Yeah. Oh. I kind of yeah. like because the money never went circulated. So if it was a big company like Boeing testing out something on their planes, or the security of this, or the government doing security of airport or something like that, the money you know they wouldn't put the money back in circulation. It was the and government, they- and they did this in order to. Take away our amendment rights and put well, I guess I'm search our bags and 
control us a little bit more. And also, George Bush <laughs> don't like black people. <laughs> All right, Kanye. <laughs> but uh, well, I was just thinking, like, I could see Boeing doing it, trying to get them to, oh, well, we can't use this plane now. We gotta, gotta up make the security more. in the plane. Let's, you guys gotta pay us more to do this now. Like, yeah. oh, so the money game. To do this. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They don't. I mean, they don't need to spend the money. They already have the money they stole, but they can get more from the government by going, oh, well, because this plane is, this can happen. This can happen. This can happen. Let's. We have to make a new plan that you can't do this, you can't do that, so we can keep this from happening, kind of thing. I mean, I know some of the other stories are that he got injured in his landing and Died ended up dying out in the, the wilderness. I mean, yeah, yeah the without the paddle yeah. uh, storyline. Oh, yeah, that was a great movie. But I feel like he had it planned out so well. That I don't he think had, he ever jumped. It, it, if that was the case and he did jump. He had it planned out so well. He had multiple contingency plans. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there would have been somebody um, on the ground to meet him and take him off. I you do know, something like that. I do know something about the weather. Um, as far as the planes not seeing him, it was super cloudy that night. Um, there was a bit of a snowstorm. The ground temperature was 24 degrees. The air temperature at 10,000 feet was... Negative four degrees Fahrenheit. So he froze on his way down and then hit and then just shattered. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, squirrel, you attack. I don't know what any of that shit means. Yeah. I, but I do know that one, he probably didn't have any goggles. Yeah. So I mean, that right there, your eyelashes, your eyes can freeze shut in those temperatures. Yeah. Um, he did, he had on loafers because he's in a suit. I mean, he had a trench coat, but. A trench he wasn't coat. dressed for the weather. No. Yeah, that's not good. So, so he would have to have somebody on the ground, and then possibly how you were saying the, the Looney Tunes bomb, could that have just been road flares? Possibly. And then he's using those flares to signal his buddy that's in the area. Yeah. Because there's no way they're going to find him without some kind of a signal. Yeah. yeah. So my my question is though. Couldn't have been um, like an Ocean's Thirteen kind of thing going on. Well, yeah. it Ocean's kind of is. I mean, I like the idea of the crew like carrying out their their bags and yeah. it's inside of it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like that's exactly what I pictured when you're reading it. I just I feel like it was a movie, like the way everything played out. It was like and a no one died. Yeah. Oh, except oh, yeah. maybe David. Yeah, nobody nobody died. Nobody was hurt. Yeah. They did find a skeleton when they were searching for him in the area. But that turned out just to be some girl that was kidnapped and killed. <laughs> just some girl. Yeah. <laughs> Not what um, we're looking for. Cover it we're, back we're up. also in the Ted Bundy hunting ground. Yeah, this so. was in 1972. And I, so I think... Bun Dan Cooper was Bundy. Bundy's first victim was 74. Yeah. So it had only been two years before, but... I, I didn't really look into what so happened Bundy with started that his, girl. his job originally... As a sky pirate, <laughs> you know, stealing from airplanes. There's a theory that it <laughs> from was plane the, stations, and uh, then he decided, oh, that's too dangerous and too much thought. I'm gonna go to kidnapping girls and <laughs> rape and murder. And there's yeah. a theory that it was the Zodiac killer that did it. Whoa! That killed the girl. Or no, that, no, that, that is DB Cooper. Yeah, that is DB Cooper. Something tells me it's just someone who wanted to. See if they could do it. Yeah. Didn't really need the money. Didn't do it for the money. Just now, one of the get away with it. One of the copycat hijackers 
carried out the same plan almost to a T with the bomb and with the skydive, asking for four parachutes, and he got $500,000. His name was Richard Floyd McCoy, I believe. And some people believe that it he might have been D.B. Cooper, and he just did the same robbery, you know, a year later or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So I was going to ask, you said it was negative four degrees outside? Uh, like up in the air. In the air. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's not also including, because cause windshield temperature and actual temperature are two different things, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if he's falling towards... So falling at that rate, that's got to be like negative 30, negative yeah. 40 degrees. So it point. wouldn't be completely out of, um, out of question if he literally just froze to death as he fell. Yeah. Okay. So that could be another theory. So I just well, he would have found his body at that six point. Six months later, that they even searched the area. So in six months, you're talking after you have the the thaw out, you got all the animals coming out of hibernation. He could have ended up food. Yeah. By a bar. I still think scattered. he would have found some kind of. But how many people have gone missing in national forests and are never found? True. I also had another question. Now this might just be a tie into without a paddle, but did he use the money to? Did they ever find like a pile of money that that had been burned? All the money they yeah. found was that stuff in the sand. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I need to stop watching movies. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many different theories out there, and that have been in movies, and they just are random theories that people talk about with this case. And. Um, oh yeah, there's a whole podcast where I mean that podcast I was talking about. They bring on authors that have written books with their theories yeah. and stuff. And I've even seen the DB Cooper storyline being used in other TV shows. And movies mm-hmm. and things like that, where it's not D.B. Cooper, but it's the same yeah. principle of, of the story. And so, I mean, yeah, you pick up all this information, and by now everything's just so intertwined together that it's hard to tell the truth from yeah. the fiction. And yeah, I don't know. I I still I'm kind of stuck on my theory that there was never a person, yeah. that it was all a a group, a group conspiracy. Well, that's like going back to the for someone. In that age time, knowing that much about the planes, had to have worked on them or flown them or something because it's not like you have like the, we have the internet now that he could have just typed in Boeing seven twenty seven specs and learned everything about it. I mean, yeah. he would oh, have yeah. had to have learned yeah. from, from building, designing, flying, something. or or having his partner. I mean, yeah. his partner on the ground that picks him up, like Amy was saying. Maybe yeah. he knew that stuff. Yeah. And, but. Um, well, say so who's to say that they didn't? You said they cut something off the uh, parachute, or they said they saw him do that. Mm-hmm. Let's say he didn't cut off something on it, so he could put the parachute on the bag of money. Like say it was the stewardess threw the bag of money out the plane with the parachute to let it. They said they used the audit, the military one, yeah, that would go off by itself. No, it, no, they were the, all rip cords. Yeah, yeah, they were all rip cords. Okay. Because the military does make ones that are manual only for uh, high altitude, low open but jumps. Say, say he could have possibly just thrown it off and had someone on the ground pick it up and yeah. go off. Yeah. But. One of the copycat hijackers was actually caught because they put a tracking device inside the parachute. Oh, yeah? So, I mean, those things were available at the time. Yeah. I mean, maybe he had one in his briefcase. So. I'm really sad that the cheeseburger guy didn't get more like recognition. <laughs> the, I mean, the hamburglar. 
He did, Amy. He had a McDonald's character <laughs> named after him. Like, I want $500,000 and I want you to kill my boss. Uh, I guess I'll just take some cheeseburgers. Wait, <laughs> I want $500 and I want you to assassinate my boss. Yeah, I can make a deal for five hamburgers. <laughs> okay, I'll take three. Give Sorry. me five hamburgers and just give me like a 20 second head start. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this was definitely. Make it 20 minutes because those cheeseburgers are going to make me kind of slow. <laughs> if you see me inside. He, really, he originally asked for three cheeseburgers and three sides of fries, and they wouldn't go for the fries. So he only got the cheeseburgers. <laughs> Damn, you guys are stingy today. Because <laughs> by 1980, the government's stance on hijackers was. We're not going to give you what you want. Yeah. We, we don't negotiate with you people. Yeah. What, what do you, you mean, mean, you people? people. God <laughs> damn it. <laughs> I can say that. You don't get to say that. <laughs> what? Sky pirates can do whatever they want, okay? <laughs> well, you know, eventually hijackings became more of a political tool, a terrorist political tool. When he got into the 80s and the 90s. Well, they, they were I mean, back then, too. Uh, I mean, the majority of people wanted to be flown to Cuba for political reasons. True. But there was also the, like, I think the Palestinians were hijacking airplanes and holding them ransom for stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I do find it quite you, quite hilarious that they made a replica of the Havana airport in order. Oh, they were going to. No, they were just thinking about it. That would have been really smart, though. Like, that would have added it back into the Looney Tunes. Whole storyline. <laughs> Let me just paint this on the wall real quick. Yeah. Like, Wait, how the hell did he run through it? <laughs> Dink. Oh, that's a wall. Oh. Those are my ears. <laughs> oh, those are mine. <laughs> Breaking shit. Oh, not only is it just painted on the wall, but like the plane lands and it looks like you're on the runway, but you're really you're sliding straight into the jail. Like, yeah. <laughs> like just. <laughs> Going straight into a hangar that's just a big jail cell. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. I see it. I like it. Also, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> didn't, Sorry. You didn't, didn't have tighten it tight. down? Yeah, it was real tight. You're not tight, over. man. You're just not tight. <laughs> Getting all loosey-goosey over there. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> what? Loosey-goosey. Don't ever yeah. call my dog's name in vain, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I personally liked how the pilots were like... Uh, I like that they, they checked on him. I'm like, oh, are you okay back there? <laughs> See, that's more the reason why I feel like... Do you, do you, do you need something? <laughs> you doing all right back there? Everything good? <laughs> do you need my help? Do you need my assistance? <laughs> yeah, like... The pilots were a little too nice. Well, I mean, at that time, it was... You just go along with whatever they wanted. I guess in any way you could help the hijacker was what you were supposed to do as an employee. I because guess, insurance covered everything. There's no reason anybody needs to get hurt. I guess also you're looking at it as we were talking about it earlier, how back in the early days of you know, commercial flights, it was a... a what was the word I used? It was a luxury, a luxury and it was like this... Really, it was more, how are we going to get people to fly on these planes when they could just drive or take the bus yeah, well, was, and not have to worry about being involved in a plane wreck? I Chad just, knows where I'm going with this. I'm just picturing, like, 
a Chick Fil A worker. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> my oh, pleasure. Well, what would you? What would you like, sir? Oh, you have a bomb. Okay. Um. Well, would you? Would you like fries with that? That'd be my pleasure. Okay. <laughs> now, would you like another scotch and coke? Yeah, you would. Okay. My pleasure. Uh, thank <laughs> you for coming today. As he's jumping out the plane. Thank you. Come again. <laughs> Sorry. Eh? <laughs> I'm just thinking, you know, it was a whole a whole experience to fly on a plane. And it maybe that's what it is. The pilots and everybody, they have it so instilled into their brain that you act this way with the customers that they just they just were in their I'm a pilot, I'm just flying the plane kind of mode. And yes. Thank you for flying today. Uh would is there anything else we'd like you like for us to do for you, Mr. Cooper? Uh, no, no, she will not take her dress off. M- Mr. Cooper? Wait, Mr. Cooper, are you still here? Mr. Cooper, paging Mr. Cooper. All right, well, that's going to conclude our flight today. Uh, <laughs> we will be landing in Reno in what, two hours. Uh, I don't know why I'm still talking to this, because no one else is in the plane. Okay. Oh. He could have at least shut the damn door. <laughs> no, it's getting I cold know. in here now. <laughs> There was a psychologist. I don't know if he worked for the FBI or worked for the airliner or something like that, but it was like a criminal psychologist. And, and he informed the captains before they took off towards Reno that this man was probably going to jump out of the plane and then blow the plane up with the bomb. So that was on their minds yeah. when they were flying. Well, at that point... <laughs> think if, about that. If you heard that, you'd think they'd be like... I mean, that would explain why she wasn't going to open the door other than fear of being sucked out. But yeah. Well, no, because if he gets out, then... Then they're dead. They're dead, but yeah, because yeah, he took that bomb with him. Yeah, I mean, the really the only thing left behind was that tie, which might not even have been his. <sighs> I just I don't know. I just, something about it makes me feel like it. It was all he, inside. He also because the stewardesses would sometimes write down the note of what he wanted to say to the pilots and then carry it up there. He also took those notes that were in their handwriting back. See, that's another thing too. Is there's no evidence of these notes. So that it's more it's to all me, word of mouth. It's all yeah. more to me that it's all an inside conspiracy and that there was never a person. You know? Sorry, you're talking about him talking on the phone to the pie. I'm just picturing. So what are you doing? Yeah. Well, I'm think yeah, I'm thinking I want two hundred thousand <laughs> some parachutes. Do you want anything? I can ask for you too. Oh, like. oh, that that <laughs> That's where the cheeseburgers came from with the other that, guy. That reminded me uh, of something else while they were wait, waiting before they took off to Reno. Cooper asked asked them to bring uh, dinner on board for uh, the flight attendant and the pilot and the engineer. So See, they ordered their own food. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, seriously, do you want anything? Like, I mean, if I get fries, are you going to eat the fries cuz He's like, I'm already here making demands, guys, you know. You well, I mean, I, I don't want to be fat. I don't want to order it all just for me. I mean, like, so if I order something, you'll eat some of it? I don't you know. Will? Okay. Um, yeah, so let's get two number 2s, a number 3. Do you guys want a chocolate shake? Yeah, okay. And a chocolate shake. Four straws, please. Four yeah, straws. Four straws. We're, we're we're having we're having friend time. This is really fun. We should do this again, guys. I heard another story, and and there's no way to tell him this is true or not, but there was another flight in the area, and they patched in over the intercom the conversation that that plane that was being hijacked in the the tower, so the passengers could listen in on it for entertainment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's kind of like today when we something happens and we glued to the news while it's Mm -hmm. happening, you know? Like, I actually will get on and listen to the, uh, I have a 
police scanner on my phone. Yeah. And I'll sit and listen to the police scanner from time to time. <laughs> Thanks, patients of or patients. <laughs> Shut up. Thanks, We're done. Passengers of flight seven twenty seven. Uh, we have some fun uh, entertainment for you tonight. Uh, we will not be showing a movie. Um, instead, we are going to be listening to a hijacked plane transmissions. Uh, please sit back, enjoy, and uh, uh, yes, you have a question, stewardess. Oh no! Okay, well, uh, so sit back, enjoy. Um, this may be rated R, um, and this may or may not be our plane, but we're not going to tell you. Surprise! <laughs> uh, well, please enjoy the rest of your flight, and uh, we will be landing in Los Angeles in about three point five hours. Thank you. So I want, I want five hundred thousand, and I need to go to. Somewhere that's not the U.S., sir. We can't do that. Um, we 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 just can't do that. <sighs> oh wait, it's 1971. We totally can do that. <laughs> okay, okay, all right, all right. Obviously, that's going to take too long. Um, how about three burgers and a 20 minute head start? <laughs> oh, you can do that. You can do. That? Oh, okay. Uh, so on my burger, I, I want five patties on each each burger. Okay. Uh, can I have a whole wheat bun? Because I really um, want a whole sorry, wheat bun. Sorry, McDonald's is closed. Shit. Uh, we'll only be able to do Wendy's. Um, they're going to be square patties. I love square patties because I'm a square. Um, and we can only do a double, uh, if that's all right. Just order six burgers, then. We'll, we'll, we'll make it work. Uh, nope, we can't do that. We can do three burgers um, with no uh, toppings. And uh, it'll be a dry burger, no sauces on it. Um, and they're going to be out of fries. Um, and the frosty machine is broken. So, uh, hold on for a second. Cheryl, do you have ketchup in the cockpit? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, but the captain's got some bad eggs. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, now, now, realistically, Cooper could have jumped out anywhere after that door was open. Yeah. Just because they felt that little hiccup. That yeah. could have been turbulence. That could have been. I'm just thinking he jumped. Like when you said that, I'm just picturing him jumping out, like. Looney Tunes style and getting hit by the tail of the plane. Just, Wee! oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's why they never found the money. <laughs> um, or the parachute. <laughs> also, when the plane landed, they did set up a perimeter thinking that he might have snuck off the plane, like jumped out onto the runway and like combat rolled and like went off into a field. So <laughs> That's some G.I. Joe shit right there. Tuck and roll, tuck and yeah. roll. Because this whole thing is based off of a Looney Tunes cartoon. Anything is possible. <laughs> So they, they cordoned off the airport and made sure nothing yeah. could get out. You know things. why they never found him, right? It's because he jumped out. His parachute got stuck on the tail end of the plane. And they dragged him for about eh, another hour. And then he fell off somewhere around uh, Utah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Dan Rather reported on this. And interestingly enough, he didn't call him D.B. Cooper. He called him D.A. Cooper. But that didn't stick. D.B. Cooper did. Oh, there's something about D.B. Cooper that just kind of yeah. rolls, rolls off the off tongue. tongue. Jinx. Rolls off the tongue. Double, double jinx. Triple jinx. Quadruple jinx. Quintuple jinx. Fuck. And the male sibling wins. <laughs> Let's get a slow clap. <sighs> Tell him what he won, Dave. Wait, what? <laughs> Three I told burgers. you to stop drinking in the jab. He's just learned to ignore <laughs> us. <laughs> I, I first heard about this case from that movie you were talking about without a paddle. And at, for years, I thought it was just 
something that was made up for the movie until I seen some kind of reference to it on another movie. Yeah, or so show I, I heard of DB Cooper, but I didn't know anything about it until I watched Without a Paddle, and that was really the most information I knew, and none of it was real. Besides, <laughs> yeah. he jumped out of a plane with cash. Yeah. The name wasn't real. <laughs> but one thing I did learn from the film is that there'd be pot in them hills. <laughs> There's pot in all the hills. The hills are alive with the sound of pot. With the sound <laughs> you, of Mary Jane. You guys could have totally had a jinx moment. Nope, I don't do that shit. <laughs> I get tongue twat. <laughs> I get tongue twat. I get tongue twat. I like that. But I get tongue tied. But what I said was tongue twied, okay? Tongue I didn't say tongue twat. That's nasty. <laughs> you nasty, brother. Well, so, I really like the histology of <laughs> D.B. Cooper. So what I think ultimately is he, he jumped out of the airplane. Uh, he pretty much, he couldn't even use his arms to even pull the ripcord. He fell. Probably <laughs> Was imp- he a T-Rex? And impelled himself on a tree somewhere and got eaten by a bear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what, what I think happened. I like my being drug off the... <laughs> Tail end of the plane because his parachute got All of these theories <laughs> fit amongst the Looney Tunes. Yeah. <laughs> the theory. I'm, not gonna, I'm picturing like the coyote in a parachute just sitting there just flapping <laughs> back and forth behind the plane just with the sun going, not again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in fact, all of these theories fit except for mine. And mine is more of, yeah, an Ocean's Serious? Eleven yeah. type. We're going to get this down. But... That's a fun one. I like D.B. Cooper. The story is really interesting. Now, usually at the time, there was only like a five-year statute of limitations on this type of hijacking or this type of robbery. But what the FBI did was they put out a subpoena for the John Doe known as Dan Cooper. So even if he comes forward today or if he's caught today, he'll still have to answer for the crime. Hmm. Because they were worried about it come 1976 or so that the guy would be like, yeah, I'm D.B. Cooper, but you can't do shit about it. And here's all my money. Yeah. See, that's the thing, though. He's not in the U.S. anymore. He's out of states. He's not out of sites, but out of states. I mean, it's also very possible he survived. It was real, survived, and just went to a small town and just used cash to buy everything, but at, like, you know, a gas station or... Something like that, and just in some small towns, some you know, okay, they just put the cash in the safe when they're done with it for the day. So that money could be circulate, circulating around this one one <laughs> county in a little bitty in the middle of Wyoming. So yeah, if but, you but have never and, going into a never, bank though yeah. is weird. So if you have a person that lives in your small town, and he screams "Get off my lawn!" multiple times, we're not talking about every guy, but an older guy. Okay, hold on, hold on, it gets better, it gets better. And every time he mumbles under his breath, God, stealing was so much easier in my day. You'll know it's DB. Okay. And that was the mumble of Eli. DB Cooper. Really? What? Okay. Anyways. We're all a little bit dumber after what I... But yeah, super cool dude. Yeah, I would have liked to meet him, man. I would have been like, hey, man, how do you, how do you steal $200,000? So, D.B. Cooper, if you listen to this podcast. No, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if D.B. Co- Cooper is alive. 
he would know how to download a podcast at this point. This was in the seventies. He what? He'd be depending how old he was then. I mean, he could be in his seventies. Do you yeah, think? 70s, 70s. 80s. Do you think our grandmother could download a podcast? Hey, no. I've known some old people who could do a shit ton with electronics. True, there are some out there. And he obviously was smart enough to figure out how to hijack. He knew a plane. How, he knew how to build a Boeing seven twenty seven. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he could probably learn how to operate his phone to listen to a podcast. Possibly. So, DB Cooper, I'm sorry if I insulted you and you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, you are well above many. Uh, your please age. join our Patreon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to get us the money without it having to go through a bank. <laughs> also, please use cryptocurrency. We don't really want to yeah. deal with the serial numbers. We only accept Bitcoin from DB Cooper. <laughs> oh, my God. That's going to be fucked up when we realize we get a Patreon and he paid in Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, what? Your secret's safe with me. <laughs> Thanks right. for joining Patreon, Dan. Daniel, um, Copper, <laughs> uh, we really appreciate it. <laughs> I love that, Daniel Copper. Nice catch. Cad. <laughs> Your brain works faster than mine. Who's this IMDB? <laughs> Come on, that was a good joke. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so that is the DB Cooper. All right, so now that we've done D.B. Cooper, we're going to head over to Eli. Eli, what do you got for us? All right, I'm going to set the mood. <clears throat> Malaysian Airline Flight 370 took off from Kaula Lumpur International Airport March 8, 2014, destined for the Beijing Capital International Airport at 12.41 a.m. with 239 passengers on board, including staff bound for Beijing. <coughs> now, the timeline is kind of weird here because the only interaction that they had with the pilots were uh, was only one actual vocal interaction. That's all they, they, they have recorded. Okay, so they took off at 12.41 a.m. on March 8, 2014. At 1.07 a.m., the trans- transponder in the plane sent back an automatic message saying all was okay. At 1.19 a.m., the co-pilot signs off saying, all right, good night, as they were leaving Malaysian airspace. At 1.21 a.m., the transponder stops working. Now, the transponder is how they basically keep track of the flight path. Now, they still know the flight path due to the fact that you had military radar, and they could track it from that point, right? Okay. <clears throat> At 1.28 a.m., Thai radar sees an unidentified blimp along the unexpected, uh, along an unexpected flight path, plane or path. No one uh, reports this whatsoever. They just think it's, you know, an anomaly or something like that. Along the same time frame, Vietnamese aviation sees what it thinks to be Flight 370. Twice they contacted the Malaysians. It takes days to get a reply. At 2.15 a.m., Malaysian radar sees a blimp uh, at the Strait of Malacca. Again, no one reports it. The only people that actually reported it was the Vietnamese aviation. Okay. 
Now, this plane is has uh, an experienced 53-year-old captain. His name is Captain Omachar, or Amachar, uh, and a um, literally a rookie who's never actually flown a plane. This is like his first flight with uh, a commercial so airline. Captain Amachar and an amateur. <laughs> yeah, an amateur. Um, but that was the only radio interaction they had as far as vocals go. Okay. <clears throat> now from that point, they they pick up um, they pick up blimps of what they think is the plane throughout a flight plan, right? Throughout the radar of the uh, the military forces on three separate uh, military radars. And then at that point, it wasn't until the flight was like three hours uh, delayed that people start to raise suspicion. Okay. At that point, uh, three hours pass, and then they start to contact uh, airspace and stuff like that to see if, if they had, you know, if there was some sort of like um, distress code sent out or something like that, something to tell them where the hell they went, right? Uh, they can't find them. It wasn't until about 14 or 14 or 15 days later that they actually addressed that the plane was missing. And then about six hours after that, Malaysian officials come, uh, come to, uh, go live and basically say that the Malaysian airline is missing. Uh, there are rumors that it landed, um, in, uh, on an airport, um, off an island about 45 miles off of Malaysia coast, a Malaysian coast, uh, but all these are rumors. Um, it, it's not until about two or three days later that the reports are pieced together to actually watch the flight plan of what they think is the Malaysian airline. Now, the best way I can explain this to you guys is, and this will, I'll, we'll probably put a photo up on, on our Facebook or something to actually show you. So, say that this right here is the airspace, okay? And they're supposed to go straight out this way west, okay? What the plane actually did was it went out here, and this is their airspace right here. Once it, it, went, it they only contacted once the airspace, uh, once they're about to uh, leave airspace. And they contacted them, said all was okay, good night. And then they cut it. They they cut their transponder box. Then, literally, did a 180 and came back around. Okay, back into the airspace. Back into the airspace. Now, heading easterly. Heading east. Okay, so at that point, and keep in mind, this is actually an interesting point right here. At that point, they fly back through um, uh, Malaysia. And on to uh, on towards like the coast of Vietnam, okay. And they continue east, or they continue that way, and then that's where they blink on the the Strait of Malacca, okay. And the Strait of Malacca is basically a wide uh, a wide part where there's little little bitty islands here and there, which also they had on record of it catching um, radar as well, and then. After that, that was the last time anything was seen. Uh, from that point, it was a situation where uh, they didn't really go out and look for him immediately. 
it was literally after that that 14 day process and that six day process that they actually started to send out um, uh, searchers and whatnot. And on top of all that, there was no intercoms or transmissions from this plane to like, because if I'm personally on an airplane and it starts to go down or there's something weird that's going on, I'm going to immediately start calling people and immediately start trying to get in contact with people. There was no phone calls received from any family members whatsoever. There's no um, interactions between anybody. There's no postings on Facebook because at that time Facebook was popular. There's nothing. Um, And then the plane disappears. Um, About after the 14-day process ends and then eight days later, they actually start sending out search and rescue things after they're able to actually map the flight plan. And they can't find any wreckage. They can't find any... um, disruptions in like land like you know hills and stuff like that because it is a mountain area for the most part where they were flying over <clears throat> uh after the malaysian forces uh decide to go uh look they start trying to get um other countries to help out as well now here's where it's kind of weird <clears throat> the families of these uh these victims we can't call them victims because they were never found um, the families of these people uh, press the government over and over and over and over again to actively go out and look, to actively go out and search. And every time they were like, "We're literally, we literally can't do this because it's in not. I mean, it's in uh, like international waters, but at the same time, like we're we don't have enough resources to go out and just you know whatever because it involved like oceanography, it involved all this other kind of stuff. Because if they landed in the ocean, there's multiple situations where they can only span a certain amount of time. By the time, you know, all that happened, most of the wreckage would either be gone or unsalvageable. So Malaysia actually took the action of trying to get other countries involved to help look. Australia was the one who basically came in and was like, we'll help you look. Um, Because what was happening is that uh, Vietnam and uh, a few of the other countries around this area we're like, we'll help you, but you need to, because they were trying to write up a certain, uh, certain basic contract, basically like, this is what we need you for, this is the equipment that we need, and Malaysia was taking their time in checking off on this, so they couldn't actually take action until it was okay, and then that's whenever Australia stepped in and was like, we'll help you look for these people, and they were able to like basically go right in. Now, experts while they were looking at this flight pan, figured out that this is where the last known location of this plane was due to uh, radar. This is the last known location, so they probably crashed here. So they immediately marked it out as a crash, marked it as a total. So they started to look at this area. There was no wreckage or anything like that. Um, Nothing that showed uh, any kind of uh, uh, parts or anything being scattered on the water. Now, a lot of people think, and like even I was thinking this as well, if a plane crashed into an ocean, there are floatable objects no matter how fast you hit the water. Um, it, even if you were to hit the water and the plane did, were to disintegrate, there are plenty of floatable objects, a part of the plane that would you know be able to float. <coughs> CNN covered this uh, a few years back. Nonstop. 24 hours. Nonstop 24 hours. <laughs> CNN covered this uh, uh, a few years back, nonstop 24 hours, and had a bunch, not even like a bunch of people from all of the world that were oceanographers, um, 
basically uh, security groups uh, dealing with like you know what could, what could have happened was it um, terrorists was it this was it that um, and they came in with a whole bunch of different theories um, the Malaysian government actually came through about a few years prior to this and I think it was like in 2016 that they said that there was um, three or four people that boarded the plane that seemed to be passengers, not passengers, but buddies, that they claimed that it was a terrorist act. No terrorist group has ever um, owned up or took credit for this at all. So immediately that checks off that because everybody knows that if something were to take place like this and it was a terrorist group, they would have taken full responsibility for it, mm-hmm. period. No one ever took responsibility. They like to brag about their actions. They like to brag about their actions. That being said... Um, CNN covered this. Uh, there was also a 60-minute 60, uh, 60 uh, episode that was dedicated to this where they brought in um, an oceanographer and three other um, basically security guys, or not security guys, higher-up military, uh, basically people who are uh, uh, major in studying plane crashes and why they happen um, and stuff like that. And the ultimate uh, hypothesis that they had were one of two. One, it was a um, basically a collateral suicide where um, the pilot dove just straight up. We're at their altitude, straight nosedived into the water. <clears throat> or uh, it was uh, some sort of uh, mechanism that went wrong. And either way, it ultimately ends in them crashing. Now... One of the uh, the guys that were a part of this, and he's from the U.S., I, I can't really pinpoint his name, but a lot of their names weren't even brought up. But the guy was like, if the plane crashed, there would be debris, no matter how late it was. Well, that's when they bring in an open oceanographer, and somehow, like, simultaneously, in that region that th- th- they had said that the plane crashed, there had been uh, four typhoons in that area. And he said exact words, if... There had been typhoons in that area, just one typhoon in that area. The wreckage of the plane would no longer exist in that area. Period. It would have scattered to the four winds, and it would have been unrecoverable. Like I mean, you just couldn't find them. Now, a lot of people—not a lot of people think—but like whenever I first read about um, basically not assisted suicide, but uh, captains doing this kind of thing. I was like, okay, this must have been the first idea that you know this ever happened. This has happened multiple times um, over the hundred, like the the years that people have taken uh, planes for transportation. Uh, there was one that happened in um, Australia, and there's another one that happened uh, off the coast of, um, I think it was Japan, happened <laughs> 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 off the coast of Japan or something like that. Um, and they're they're basically like you know, uh, in this case, if this was the case that that happened with the Malaysian airline, um, it was a situation where, um, you know, he wanted to die, but ended up taking, you know, two hundred two hundred twenty seven passengers with him. Um, and one of the occasions that there was a air, uh, a pilot that did this, it was a co pilot who actually ended up committing suicide. And on top of that, there could have been a multiple. Uh, multiple uh, outcomes and or hypothesis of why it happened in the first place. Um, now let's talk about this 90 degree turn. Okay. So they take off. It's a 180 degree turn. By sorry. The way. Thank you. 180 degree turn. Appreciate it, man. Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> let's talk about this 180 degree turn. Math man. The reason why this is such a weird turn is that the captain with more experience, his hometown was literally right off the coast from where he turned. And they were wondering why he turned so long, like his, his 90 degree turn was so long. And one of the um, one of the experts was like, that's, that's his hometown. So immediately they thought that the captain was the person who was who had orchestrated this idea or this thing. Um, basically looking back at his hometown for the last time type situation. Um, still to this day, like no one really knows what happened. There's no wreckage, uh, wreckage that has ever been recovered or found. Uh, the transponder box is like the main thing that they would be looking for because even if you turn it on, or sorry, even if you turn it off, a lot of people don't know this, but even if you turn the transponder box off, it still records the, the plane's flight pattern. It yeah. still records what it's done. Also, what's interesting about the situation, though, and the reason why it wasn't taken so seriously immediately, is that the plane um, flew between two different um, uh, territories, which is super um, methodical, like they planned it. Um, because it, it went missing exactly when it would change airspace. Exactly. So it would go from one tower or one government tower, air traffic oh. control tower, to another one. And they would just say it's an anomaly. Like yeah. that, that was the easiest way to explain it. Um, but when you put them, like what they basically did was they took information from all these other comp- or all these other uh, countries and their their data, and they put it together. And literally, that's what the plane did was it basically followed the territory line. So when it would pick up in one tower it would blink off and pick up in another and then back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until ultimately it didn't hit a tower anymore. And that's why they think the plane had crashed in that area. Um, on top of that, um, they were Malaysia and some of the other countries that were not so much involved, but involved in looking for the, uh, this plane. Uh, and one of, the, one of the main reasons why it was so um, hard to get them together and to get them on the same page was that uh, there was a lot of military involved in it. Um, a lot of uh, military, I guess, technology is what they were talking about and how it hadn't been used yet for this certain situation. Um, and they didn't want to really share that with... And nobody was at war at this time, but at the same time, they were all kind of at each other's throats. Yeah. Um, uh, and also, a lot of disagree disagreements and, and stuff like that had had uh, not really caused a rift. But in any situation, especially when you're dealing with other countries and other cultures, you have that problem. Yeah. Um, so ultimately, it took them longer than it should have to actually go out and search for these survivors. Um, and like I said, no plane wreckage has ever been uh, ever been seen or found. Um, and. Uh, it's still kind of an unsolved mystery. People are still currently looking for, and Australia is still involved in this, people are still currently looking for yeah. wreckage. I'll say, <clears throat> like, I understand, like, the whole, like, if it crashed into the water and there's typhoons and stuff, I get it being separated, but you would think three years later, or five years later, s- salvage would have been washed up on shore at, yeah. and somewhere. Some shore somewhere should have something that's yeah. the one that makes me think that it didn't crash into the ocean. Um, I mean, yeah, a lot of it probably would sink with the tide, the waves and the currents and everything, but some of it would 
show wash up on shore somewhere, I would think. Well, you know, that area, the Malaysia area, Japan, all along those Pacific islands, there are tons of islands. And most, a lot of those islands are heavily forested, things like that, very small populations to no populations on some of them. Yeah, if it crash landed on some unpopulated island somewhere. And that's a lot like mean, what I, the idea is with my story. Yeah. Um, my theory on this is that it was maybe not like a terrorist hijacking, but an inside job hijacking because to know exactly when to cut off the transponder and when to turn when to turn and yeah. everything i mean had it been someone who knew the flight one the previous flight pattern for the plane how to do like i wouldn't think terrorists because the terrorists wouldn't know to okay we got to cut the transponder here we got to turn here we got to follow this path here because we're going to blink off of different radars so not going to be able to completely follow us i feel like it had it been an inside job by either the captain amateur or the amateur pilot, which makes me think maybe Probably. the amateur pilot was, I mean, how many times are we, some of the terrorist organizations we have had, like they have training school, pilot schools and stuff yeah. for them. It's like maybe he was a terrorist group or whatever, or just, you know, someone who wanted to do something against the Malaysian government I or also something like that. But. I don't feel like it's a suicide type thing. In the sense that if he was going to do that, he would have crashed it sooner yeah. and not flown so far back. I mean, it's a mountainous region. You'd think he would have just crashed it into the mountain yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about the whole idea is because like, whenever I was listening and reading and, and whatnot, I immediately thought that it was the co-pilot. Yeah. Okay. Um, just because the fact that he was a 56-year-old extremely experienced pilot had never had any problems. Uh, he was a decorated pilot. Um, and even like so just some of the stuff that came out about him, like, you know, he was, he wasn't unhappy with life. Yeah. Um, so that's the reason why I thought immediately it was the co-pilot. Cause th like I said, there's, there's been stories of co-pilots locking the door behind a, uh, the captain as he takes a piss, comes back and realizes the door's locked and then boom, Everybody's dead. Yeah. Now, were they the only two in the cockpit, or was there also there, like an engineer? There's only two. Okay. Um, on top of that, uh, the, the the situational uh, turn. This is directly like the uh, a plane. The they even pointed this out. The amount of 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 turn on the plane. It could have turned a lot quicker than what it did. It was a very wide, very methodical turn. Okay, and it, it's it's kind of simple at that point too because the other defense is maybe they were just following the flight plan until they got out of airspace and then just take a turn, you know. But it's still kind of coincidental that you're turning with perfect view of the pilot's hometown. Yeah. It might. I mean, also though, it might not have been a perfect view. It could have been cloudy. It could have been, yeah, stormy. I saw something when talking about this. Is like the chances of it are very odd because of the timing of the transponder cutting out and everything. Is let's just say they were flying. Something happens to 
the captain, uh, you know, passes out, goes into a seizure, something like that. And around that same time, mechanical, you know, electrical failure or something. And the navi- like, you know, the navigation system g- gets cut out and the transponder cuts out and the, the rookie pilot, you know, tried to correct it and try to return back to the airspace or back to the uh, airport, you know, try to fly it back. But without having any form of navigation, just kind of okay. flew off into the wrong direction yeah. until they ran out of gas or until he found a place to land it. But who's to say he didn't land it in, I want to say enemy airspace, but just enemy territory into a, <laughs> another country's airspace. And then it was taken as a host, hostile, you know. Or was shot down. Yeah, or yeah. something like that. And then once. And, and now that other country is like, oh, yeah. shit, we don't and want to say anything about Viet, that. You know, Vietnam shot it down and then went, ooh, that was a passenger plane. Well, it's kind of like when Russia shot down that plane um, and then was like denied it for a long time and then come to find out, no, it was Russia that shot down the plane yeah. and it was a passenger plane. So, so you're suggesting that maybe the pilot had like a heart attack. He fell yeah. over onto the control panel, hit a bunch of buttons and switches, and the co-pilot was like, "Shit, I don't know how to set any of these back right." Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, that's as soon as I mean, it even could have literally just been a electrical failure. But then I would think if it, the seasoned pilot would have been able to still continue course or return it back to airspace. But, but I'm the amateur if, pilot might the not amateur have been able to. pilot was the one who had to do it because something happened. I mean, maybe the, cap- the captain spilt his coffee, electrocuted himself, and fried the <laughs> navigation system. Yeah. And Are the rookie was like, shit, again? what am I doing? And, you know, rookie now, probably had only been on a few flights himself and never had to deal with it. Damn, this is my first day. <laughs> <laughs> I was 30 years from retirement. Now, I remember watching this on... Uh, CNN or some one of the news channels and they had an expert on who was talking about a theory about that the plane was landed and the people were taken off as hostages type situation yeah. and that it's all just been kept on the down low yeah and that nobody's talking about it because it would cause like major yeah. major issues I could see that in the 70s with D.B. Yeah. Cooper. But in today's world, with all the social media and all the everything, I feel like it would be too hard to keep it this quiet this long. Yeah. Somebody would leak. I mean, hell, they can't, Trump can't yell at somebody in the White House without it becoming a news story somewhere. Yeah. You know, I feel like there would be a leak, a leak somewhere to where it would have gotten out and it would have been known by now. So, but I have heard that theory that it was a hostage situation for like a country that took actually. It was maybe feuding with Malaysia yeah. or something. And so the no. the thing is, Dave, did you see? No, I was just going to point out that the thing I find the strangest in all this is that at one nineteen a.m., he radios over "good night" or something to yeah, that effect. Yeah, exact words were "good night." Um, that that seems very cryptic, and then two minutes later, the transponder stops working. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's a that's a heck of a coincidence. I mean, how how is that a normal thing for them to put over the radio good night or well, something? E- even even the uh, 
not inspector. Uh, the guy that was head of the investigation said that it was really weird because it was almost okay. an informal uh, conversation. Yeah. Because they never did that. Yeah. Um, now, now it's a note on, on 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 what we were talking about with the uh, the co-pilot. Co-pilot was not amateur. He he had gone through the training and he basically uh, he was he had gone through all the training and he had flown smaller commercial airlines, but he'd never flown okay. something commercial as big as that. Line. You yeah, just commercial. said rookie, so I took it as yeah. amateur. Well, I, I meant rookie as in he had never... F- it was his first flight on... Uh, a commercial aircraft. A commercial aircraft. Large aircraft. commercial aircraft. Yeah. Also, here's another theory for that theory. And this is a theory that one of the investigators brought up. They thought, because the, the fact of the matter is that nobody reached out and called anybody, and um, nobody tried to get in contact with anybody. None of the passengers did. They explained that if they lowered the cabin pressure at some point and or basically shut off the air supply to a certain point, mm-hmm. it would knock everybody out in the cabin. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the reason why there wasn't any, like, if this is what happened, that's the reason why there wasn't any fight. There wasn't any uh, situation of uh, uh, contact with any ground people whatsoever. Uh, and it is, it, they even, they didn't go into explanation on how to do it. But they said that it's very viable that that's probably what happened. Yeah. Um, he also said that even if there was a malfunction in the plane, because they did bring up the fact that uh, the there was a possibility, uh, not a possibility, but this is not out of out of question of the um, uh, captain actually having some sort of illness and not being able to be coherent. Um, even with that situation happening, the co-pilot had enough experience to land the plane. Um, on top of all that, um, if there was a malfunction with the plane um, and uh, it was somehow a situation of uh, something maniacal happening where they were meaning to do what they were doing, um, there was the the air... Uh, I forgot how they explained it, but basically... The air supply that's for the cabin is different from the ca- captain's cabin, whereas when the masks come down, their air supply was completely separate from the cabin supply. Mm-hmm. So they could have easily shut off the air supply to the cabin. Their masks drop down. There's no air. They pass out. They're still able to stay co- coherent. Yeah. So uh, it is a situation, and that is still a viable uh, outcome that they s- they still think about that that they had taken the airplane um, uh, away from uh, uh, radar and had landed it somewhere, and it, it they, they didn't technically use them for hostages because technically people, and this is one of the things that they said, people are technically currency. Yeah. You know? Well, we, talked, we talked about, about that with the Shank High Tunnels. Yeah, with our last episode about human trafficking. I yeah. mean, that's a good way to get, you know, 200... Uh, you don't know the currency of what we're wearing. <laughs> no, I'm trying to think of two hundred heads. Yeah, yeah. Could think I could think of a better word. <laughs> also interesting about it though is that this is after um, 9/11. Yeah. Okay. Um. And what what's kind of interesting about it, and I mean this is years after 9/11, but what's interesting about it is that 
what they stated is that if this happened in the U.S., we'd have jets scrambled in twenty, like yeah, immediately. As soon as a, if if the plane had gone off, like we would have lost tran, uh, transmission with a plane, automatically, we're sending something after it yeah. to figure out yeah. what's going on. Whether it be literally, oh, the pilot accidentally unplugged his headphones, like. <laughs> they would have been like, yeah. if there's no communication for even just a short amount of time, they're going to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Well, you hear that all the time. You know, they scrambled the jets to follow a plane because it flew off course. Yeah. And that's what they do is they tell them, you know, they, they basically make them land as soon as possible when that happens. Yeah, we're up in the air quickly. But you um, would think with, I mean, yes, we're that way, but in a country that didn't have a terrorist attack that killed thousands of people. They might not be thinking of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. They might. Now just this be plane going, was flying to China. Is that correct? Uh, Beijing. Yeah. 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 I mean, you wouldn't think China though. Would, at that point, China would be involved in that. Uh, they were to a certain point. Yeah. I mean, they they would have that enough. Problem we just wouldn't know about. They would have mm-hmm. enough support to send people mm-hmm. out. They 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 uh, among like like I said the other uh, other countries that were uh, surrounded the area. Uh, or all had a hand in looking for him, but now the only um, there's only a few people, and I mean by few, there's still like thousands of people doing this. But there's only a few people that are still currently looking for the wreckage. Yeah. So it's not, it's not everyday coverage on CNN anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember this story, and I didn't follow it too closely. I. Yeah, I remember but, seeing it like always on the news, but I, I, I didn't pay attention to it. But, um, but like with the DB Cooper story, you can't say anybody ever died because we have no proof of that mm-hmm. whatsoever. We have no idea what happened. Could have gotten beamed by aliens, possibly. They could have flown into a different dimension. They could have. Like a time. Slip. They could have yeah. flown into a time slip, and they hit some yellow fog, and yeah. Flew back in time. And they're they're, you know, playing with dinosaurs somewhere. Huh? <laughs> the thing is, actually, like since uh, Malaysia Flight Three Seventy uh, disappeared, there have been multiple TV shows about planes disappearing and then coming back, and mm-hmm. then stuff like that showing up. Ghost on ships. TV. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's there's a whole movie about the well, the Malaysian flight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's but a TV show. Um, what is it called? I think it's flight something or something like that. I don't remember. It was on the ABC or something like that. And it's about a flight that disappears and then it shows up like five years later, but the people on the plane have never aged. And There are YouTube videos galore about this. I mean, this is a but national, t- national yeah. TV show. Like. But like, there'll be like YouTube videos where it'll show this plane flying. Then all of a sudden the plane disappears. And then like three or four minutes later, the plane reappears back in the same spot. And continues flying. It's all bad editing, yeah. but it's that that's like a common occurrence in the theories or the conspiracy theory world there. Aliens. Well, if you have any theories about DB Cooper or Dan Cooper, as we have now learned that DB is incorrect, let us know. If you've got any theories about the Malaysia flight, let us know. Um but the Malaysia flight, I mean, if they ever discover wreckage, we'll totally cover that, too. Like They were... Okay, so this is what's kind of interesting about the whole fact. There are multiple people who are... Uh, <laughs> there are multiple organizations, I should say, not people, 
who are who are currently diving to find wreckage in general. And there was a uh, situation where they found um, something related to plane parts or whatever. And it ended up being that it was planted. Like mm-hmm. someone was like, we found the Malaysian air uh, aircraft or airpiece or whatever. And they're like, it's planted. Yeah. If you go on YouTube, there's multiple um, or multiple article, uh, sorry, videos. And then if you even Google it, there's multiple uh, articles that are just basically, I mean, it's, it's fake. Yeah. Uh, because if the plane was found and it had hardcore evidence that the plane was found, it would be all over the news. Now I know that there was a story where they found a tail section of a plane Yeah. and they brought it to shore and it ended up being a different tail number on it than yeah, the Malaysian yeah. flight. But then I'm like, okay, so there's just random plane wreckage in the ocean. <laughs> it's one of those things. I mean, with most planes, there's so many, like, it's not just the tail number or, yeah. I mean, they put serial numbers on every, almost like every piece of a plane. Yeah. So if part of it is found, they can put it with what plane it was. So. Yeah. And they're really good at piecing those things back yeah. together. So, thanks for listening. Uh, we have this will be a f- part one of a two-parter. Uh, me and Amy have some more uh, mysterious disappearances cutting your way on the next episode. And if you notice, there is a a uh, correlation correlation with these stories. Right. They all involve flight. Also, as one of the in- investigators said, that no one has paid attention to a flight missing since Amelia Earhart. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so follow us on instagram facebook and twitter at unp normalcy and you can email us at unp normalcy at gmail.com and of course our website you can go there you can look at pictures of our beautiful faces read little backstories on us and our podcast um it has links to our patreon page it's also got you can listen to all of our episodes on there and Check it out, www.umpnormalcy.com. And until next time, keep digging.